You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. The scripture this morning is Mark 7, 24 through 37. That's Mark 7, 24 through 37. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek Born in in Syrian Phoenicia, she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, excuse me, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on a bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into a region of the Decapolis. There some some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephaphtha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them to not tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, everyone. Riley, welcome to the team. It's good to have you, especially speaking as a parent of a couple of those two little ones up there. Awesome stuff. You know, this, uh, this weekend we mark Memorial Day weekend, which is a day when we remember those who have fallen and especially pray for those, the families that remember uh, the fallen as well. But it is a reminder too of the greater freedom that we have, that we all have through Jesus Christ. This past week, even more so, I think we have all been reeling from the devastating news that we have seen coming out of Texas. And with myself, a daughter going into um, kindergarten next year, I think it's hit even closer to home. And one of the things I found myself doing this week, I don't often do this, but for some reason putting, putting pen to the paper Um, wrote a little bit of my own reflections that then some kind souls encouraged me to share with you all. So I'm going to put myself out there a little bit and uh, share how this has impacted myself, the, the ways that the words of the prophet Habakkuk, I think, speak to this time and the day that we, the day that we look forward to. I wrote this on Wednesday, by the way, so it might be a little time bound, but that's okay. 
I drove my daughter to her penultimate day of preschool through bleary, tear-filled eyes on a damp, foggy morning that mirrored the sadness of my soul. Today is my son's fourth birthday, filled with trucks and trampolines, and a stark contrast with birthdays that have been taken from families in Uvalde, Texas. As I held our three-month-old son, I couldn't help but think of what kind of world he will inherit and what I will say when he asks why we did nothing. Yet another senseless act of violence is too achingly familiar and begs the question, how many times must we rinse and repeat? Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. I'm the one who signed up to serve in a war zone my children shouldn't have to. My wife, an educator, shouldn't have to. I long for that day when, as the prophet Isaiah says, swords will be beaten into plowshares and, better yet, guns into garden tools. Church, let's pray together. Our Father, our hearts are, are reeling, grieving together with the community in Texas and the families that are, are in deep mourning in this time. Well, Father, we need you. We cry out to you. We pray that you would, your presence would be known and felt among those who are hurting, those that are desperate in this time. Father, would you pour out your perfect comfort and peace and in the midst of this tragedy, Father, we pray that the hope of the gospel would shine forth. And Lord, we do long for that day when guns will be beaten into garden tools. And Father, we thank you for the hope held out in the gospel. We pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the divisions that Jesus crosses in his ministry and the divisions that Jesus has dismantled through the cross. We pray this all in the precious and matchless name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We as fallen human beings are notoriously effective at creating and sustaining stark social divisions between nations, between genders, ethnicities, classes, just to name a few. And whether we realize it or not, we find ourselves perpetuating Heidi Klum's catchphrase in Project Runway when she says, you're either in or you're out. I'm not going to try to mimic her voice in saying that, but you, you might know that phrase, you're either in or you're out. Well, in the two healing miracles that you just heard read in Mark 7, 24 through 37, Jesus challenges multiple and stark social divisions. And what he does is he sets the stage 
for the worldwide expansion of the gospel and what he would do through the cross to reconcile one new people to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you think back to Mark 5, 24 through 30, Jesus healed a Jewish woman there who overcame the concerns for ritual purity and dared to approach Jesus in faith. Here he heals the daughter of a Gentile woman who faces divisions surrounding ritual purity, gender, ethnicity, and more, as we'll see. And in the verses right before our text in Mark 7, 1 through 23, the emphasis falls on human traditions and the human heart. Yes, on what is clean and what is unclean. And the implication from that passage is that since unclean foods like pigs and dogs are no longer unclean, neither are Gentiles. And this forms a radical new approach that makes a single community of believing Jews and Gentiles possible in Christ. So let's turn to the first miracle story in verses 24 through 30 where we see Jesus challenges multiple divisions in honoring the faith of the woman from Syrophoenicia. Look at the setting there in verse 24, right off the bat. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. Jesus deliberately moves outside of Jewish territory here in what looks like another attempt, perhaps, at trying to get away with his disciples. We've seen these attempts kind of delayed over the last few, the last few stories. We've seen him go into Gentile territory before in the delivering of the demon-possessed man in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. But now the focus on Gentiles becomes even more pronounced, and, and the divisions are highlighted. The first division being that of geography or of nationality, that between Israel and Tyre. Tyre was located in this this adjoining territory north of Galilee. It was a wealthy and prosperous and important trading city, but it was known for its hostility to the Jews. In fact, there is an oracle that is pronounced against it in Isaiah 23. It is referred to by the Jewish historian Josephus as our bitterest of enemies. It is found in modern-day Lebanon, which still doesn't have a lot of love for Israel. In fact, the last two times I have entered Lebanon, the the only question I have been asked is, have you been to Israel? That was the question on, on entry. Tyre, this is the kind of region that the, the State Department would have a level four travel advisory on. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, don't go there. Actually, if you listen to the State Department, you probably wouldn't leave your house, but I digress. The second division So if the first division is that of geography or nationality, the second is that of religion, between Judaism and paganism. Tyre was notoriously pagan. Its highest god was called Melkart, the god of the hunt, the god of the sea. And we actually saw people, though, from Tyre and Sidon back in Mark 3, verse 8, when people from the surrounding regions had had begun hearing about this person, Jesus, and came and joined in with the crowds to learn more about him. And so it's possible that the woman we encounter in verses 25 and 26 here may have heard about Jesus' power to heal from these returning travelers and comes as a desperate mother. Verse 25, 
In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. The third division that we see in this passage is that of gender. Between women and men, a respectable Jewish rabbi would not have associated with a woman and a Gentile woman at that. And similarly, the fourth division is that of ethnicity between Jew and Gentile. She was culturally Greek, and more specifically from the region around Tyre, this region of Syrian Phoenicia. And closely connected with that is the fifth division, that of ritual purity between clean and unclean. Not only is she a Gentile woman, but the daughter, her daughter is possessed by, as the text says, an impure spirit. Out of desperation for her her daughter, she falls at Jesus' feet, a mark of deep respect and a profound sorrow like the synagogue leader who comes and falls at Jesus' feet, begging for the healing of his daughter who is near death. The word for begging here similarly means that she kept on begging. It shows her persistence and her faith that Jesus is the only one that is capable of doing something about her daughter's plight. And I can tell you, as a parent, I can't help but identify with her in this sense of wanting to do anything possible to save your child, to take your child's place, to do whatever it takes And here's Jesus' response, verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, admittedly, when you hear these words, especially as a modern listener today, they are almost grating on our ears. Do you sense that? These are har- they seem like harsh words. We're left wondering, wait, it's almost like you're asking the person next to you, like, did he, did he just like, liken her to a dog? Uh, one, one dear friend in commenting on this passage this past week mentioned, a, I think, a blog post that she had read that said something to the effect of like, where is my Jesus and what have you done with him? right? I think there is something to be said, though, for the, the broader, the social historical setting surrounding this passage. Not only that, but then also the context in which this passage is found. I think that is a key to, understand, to a greater understanding of what is happening. And in this, actually, in a mini parable, that Jesus gives here that very well could have been a proverbial saying, although there's, it's hard to know that for sure. In this mini parable, Jesus makes three comparisons. Bread for the gospel of the kingdom, children for the people of Israel, and little dogs for believing Gentiles. I think one of the keys to what Jesus says here is the word first, that 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 word Jesus uses to emphasize the sequence of his mission to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. It still holds out the hope that the Gentiles will also become recipients of God's grace. 
But what even leaps off the page even more at me is the word for dogs here. It is not the word that means a wild or, or scavenger type dog. It is the diminutive version of the word dog that's available in the Greek. That is puppy or household dog or pet. It is actually not a derogatory term. And again, the emphasis is on the privileged position of the Jews as the initial recipients of Jesus' ministry. Jews typically viewed Gentiles more like street dogs, considered them unclean. But Jesus changes the metaphor here. Instead of saying that, which would have been expected, he calls them little dogs who gather at the family's table. The point is that the children are fed first before the pets. And what Jesus does here is actually countercultural. It's more, I think it's important to note as Matthew does, that what he says and does is for the benefit not only of this woman who is from Syrophoenicia, but also for the benefit of the disciples who are there watching everything that is taking place. In their mind, he should not even speak to this woman, let alone a Syrophoenician. And yet Jesus goes about challenging these divisions and goes against the social norms of the day, these established norms. Perhaps the most remarkable feature of this passage to me is her quick response, demonstrating that she understands the parable, her demonstration of her her humility and her persistence. Look at verse 28. Lord, she replied, Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even though they do not eat with the children at the table, they eat the crumbs that fall to the floor. That's the the image here. It reminds me of the number of people that have been trying to convince Danielle and I to to get a dog so that they can clean up after our kids during mealtimes. Some of you that have dogs that do that, more power to you. I, sometimes I look at my daughter and I feel, I feel like she's like, one for my mouth, one for the floor, one for my mouth, one for the floor. It probably would make things easier. Honestly, our kids are warming up to the idea of dogs. It kind of, I think it was like, they were a good idea in theory, but lately they've actually been like, we'll be on a walk and they'll ask, can we pet your dog? Like when we, you know, when we pass somebody walking their dog. What this woman does though is she accepts the priority of Jesus' mission to the Jews, but points out that the Gentiles benefit from the overflow, even though the time of the Gentiles has not yet come. Her faith is on display as she acknowledges that all she needs is but a crumb from the true bread of life. She doesn't ask for a full course meal. She says, but a crumb. And to top it all off, she is the only person in Mark's gospel who addresses Jesus as Lord. She gets it. She gets it. The disciples' failure to understand about the bread in chapter 6, verse 52, contrasts with this Gentile woman's ability to quickly understand and actually turn the metaphor to her own advantage. And ultimately, she is willing to humble herself like a little dog to save her little child. Jesus affirms her persistent faith and delivers her daughter, verses 29 and 30. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. 
she went home and found her, chil- her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Her response of faith and willingness to accept whatever Jesus would give pleases him to the point that he commends her faith. Matthew, Matthew's telling of the story highlights that even more when he writes, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And what's remarkable is that the miracle happens at a distance without any personal contact. And in driving out the impure spirit, Jesus continues the work of restoring the image of God in humanity as he has been doing all along, but now restoring the image of God in a Gentile as well. Altogether, Jesus challenges the divisions of nationality, of religion, of gender, ethnicity, ritual, purity, and more in honoring the faith of the woman from Syrophoenicia. Let's turn to the second story here before then arriving at the bottom line and considering some takeaways. But this second story, we're going to note some, some similarities as well as some contrasts. But Jesus challenges multiple divisions in healing the man who is deaf. Verses 31 to 37. When Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, verse 31, and went through Sidon, then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. If you picture this, this is where like the map in the back of your Bible is really helpful, right? As Jesus heads north towards Sidon and then curves around and then down into this area, this league of 10 predominantly Greek cities that were mainly Gentile in their makeup. He's been there before. This is where This is where he restores the man possessed by a legion of demons. And the warmer reception he now receives in this area may very well have been because of this man who Jesus sent to tell those around him, his family and his community of what happened to him. Once more, Jesus challenges divisions of nationality, of religion and ethnicity as he remains outside of Jewish territory here. But there's more. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. You know, the faith of those who bring this man to Jesus, I think, should remind us of those who brought the paralyzed man, lowered lowered him down through the hole in the roof. And the new division that Jesus challenges here is that of ability. This man could no longer hear and had difficulty speaking. And this is the point in the story at which this vivid drama picks up, this sequence of verbs, this sequence of of events that happen in the healing. Look at verses 33 and 34. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, which means be opened. In taking the man aside, I believe that Jesus gives him personal attention, compassion, and and dignity. A man whose life has been on display to those around him, Jesus takes aside and heals privately. In putting his fingers into the man's ears, he not only challenges yet another division, that of, of physical contact with a Gentile, but he signals what he is about to do to this man in a way that the man can understand overcoming a a communication barrier as well. 
Similar to that, in spitting and touching the man's tongue, Jesus symbolizes what he is about to do in freeing the man's tongue. And looking up into heaven, if you can imagine all these things that he does, communicating to this man in a way that he can understand what he is about to do. I am going to free your ears. I am going to free your tongue. And I and look to God for the power to heal. Looking up to heaven, as he did with the feeding of the 5,000, emphasizing the divine dimension in Jesus' miraculous power. And yes, kind of hidden in here, but do not miss it. He breathes a deep sigh. He breathes a deep sigh. It shows his emotions, his emotional attachment and his grief, yes, over the ravaging effects of sin. Creation itself groans. And Jesus breathes a deep sigh. And in saying, be opened, it is Jesus' authoritative word of command that brings about the healing. We have seen this in Mark. His authoritative command that stills the sea. His authoritative command that drives out impure spirits. And yes, his authoritative command, be opened. The result is immediate. The result is undeniable. Verse 35, at this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. You know, this is the first of this kind of healing in Mark. And the fact that he speaks plainly here confirms that this man was not necessarily born deaf. This whole image, though, of the loosening of the tongue, I can't help but think about how early on with our son, Sam, who just turned four this past week, early on we noticed that his tongue was attached a little too far forward and that he was having trouble even getting a good suction on a bottle. And sure enough, in having it checked out, he had what's called tongue tie, which was uh, thankfully fairly easily remedied at the time. But in this image, this, the language that is used here is actually very similar. Jesus, it is as if Jesus breaks the chains of his tongue. Jesus breaks the chains of his tongue and sets him free. This demonstration of Jesus' power also challenged the disciples in their spiritual deafness. And it contrasts with the closed ears and the held tongue of those who reject him along the way. Yes, of the religious leaders as well. As he has done before, though, in verse 36, kind of a mystery, but Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. You know, the, these features have kind of puzzled me over the years. And that one aspect of this could be that he was becoming more widely known and wanted to be able to minister without the crushing weight of the crowds around him and also to be less, to, to avoid misunderstanding about him, that he is not just some spiritual healing guru walking around. But Mark 9, 9, we'll get there eventually, but it sheds more light, I think, on what happens here, where Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anyone what they had seen, this is during the transfiguration, until he had risen from the dead. Until he had risen from the dead. Belief in the risen Lord was key for, the, for understanding what took place in Jesus' ministry. And the command in Mark to go and tell finally happens after the resurrection. Chapter 16, verse 7. It comes after the resurrection. 
while the overwhelmed amazement of the people in verse 37 actually drips with some clear biblical uh, themes. The people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. He has done everything well. That is an echo of Genesis 1.31. God has just created humankind in his image, and in verse 31, he declares everything that he has made is very good. He has done this well. Jesus' restoration of the man in the image of God is now part of this very new creation, and it is a foreshadowing of the positive response to the gospel that will happen among the nations as the gospel goes forward, as tongues are loosened to tell about what tell about Jesus. And he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is an echo of the words that we heard read during the call to worship in Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. The word for mute there is the same that is used in our story as well. The restoration of speech signals the coming of the kingdom of God. And Jesus has done what only God can do. That is clear from Exodus 4, verse 11. It says, the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Like in the previous encounter, Jesus challenges divisions of geography, religion, and ethnicity, but also adds challenges to the divisions between ability, physical contact, and yes, communication. There's even a language barrier as well. We see that between Aramaic and Greek. Well, in the verses that follow, the bread theme that has been developing ever since chapter six continues as Jesus will face, Jesus will feed 4,000. Just as he has fed 5,000 in Jewish territory, Jesus feeds 4,000 in Gentile territory and shows that people from every nation and tongue and tribe have a place at the table. But before we get there, both of these stories show that God's kingdom has come and that Jesus is available to all people. No one is so far away or so unclean that they cannot receive his healing. And those who other people might dismiss as the wrong nationality or having the wrong religious background or speaking the wrong language, or whatever wrong or other human uh, division that we create. Those that are viewed in this way are actually full participants in God's kingdom because they come to him seeking his merciful healing. And so church, the bottom line for us is this. God's kingdom knows no divisions. All who come to him in faith receive bread. Just as Jesus challenged the stark stark social divisions he encountered, so should we as we invite all people to find healing in him, to taste but a crumb from the bread of life. I think there's a number of questions that we could ask. I might have to pick a, a few highlights here, but what divisions of geography or nationality is he calling us to challenge today? Jesus is not the savior of one nation. He is for all nations, and so should we be. 
Here in Evanston, there are stark geographic boundaries that must be overcome as we seek to love all of our neighbors. Globally, there are our entire nations, some hostile, where creative access is needed to bring the life-giving message of the gospel. You know, some of those places I alluded to earlier where the State Department would say not to go, but I am praying that God would raise up more workers for his harvest field. Perhaps from among those that are listening to me right now, who would be willing to cross these barriers as Jesus did to carry the gospel forward. What divisions of religion is he calling us to challenge today? Church, we need to seek greater understanding and become more conversant with other religions, especially as God increasingly brings the nations to our doorstep. But also, have we lost the sense of priority that God has placed on the Jews? Salvation, John 4.22 reminds us, is from the Jews, and God is not done with his people yet. What divisions between ethnicities is he calling us to challenge and overcome today? You know, the attitudes that we see in the story of, of Jews toward Gentiles strikes at the heart of the prejudices that still exist in this fallen world. This should cause us to be committed to at least the following. Speaking out against racism in whatever setting we find ourselves. Preparing spiritually for the inevitable tensions that threaten unity of the body as we become more multi-ethnic. Teaching in our homes and in our church against racism while embracing, while, while embracing God's heart for reconciliation between races. Ephesians 2.14 speaks directly to that. And yes, developing relationships of mutual education and submission with people of different races, both individually and corporately. And celebrating the presence and participation of our sisters and brothers in Christ from all ethnic backgrounds in our church. What divisions between ethnicities is he calling us to challenge today? And yes, what divisions between genders is he calling us to challenge today? You know, I had a kind of a telling conversation this past week with a dear friend when one of the things that we talked about were the stereotypes that we often see surrounding masculinity. I think it's important to note that in challenging and dismantling these divisions, Jesus does not eliminate our differences. Kingdom diversity is rooted in the very Trinity. It is demonstrated in the beauty that he has made in his, in his amazing handiwork of creation and is displayed in the beautiful tapestry that God is weaving together in the church. A couple others to consider. What divisions of, in, of uncleanness or physical contact or ability is he calling us to challenge today? Who are, those, who are those that get shoved aside or essentially treated as unclean in our community? And yes, what divisions of communication or language is he calling us to challenge today? We have a deeper need for language learning, for Bible translation, and, but even beyond that, there are, there are many, many oral cultures throughout our world that need access to the gospel as well. 
I love the creative work that is being done in areas such as this to be able to share and to communicate the gospel. Using smartphones, for instance, is one of the ways to get the gospel into people's hands. We need the creativity, perhaps some even among here, among us hearing me now, to be able to carry the gospel forward. Just as Jesus challenged the stark social divisions he encountered, so should we as we invite all people to find healing in him. The woman from Syrophoenicia and the friends of the man who was deaf are also examples of persistent faith. The woman showed her dogged determination to get help for her daughter. And all humans share that same desperation when, when something happens to our children. No matter our background or status, no one who comes to Jesus in humble faith is turned away. And yes, we are in need of having our ears opened and our tongues loosened. This is what Jesus did with the disciples and what he continues to do with us today. He opened their ears spiritually so they could truly understand what he was saying. He loosened their tongues so they would speak what God gave them to say. And these stories here in Mark then become a foreshadowing of what the disciples would do in their future ministry in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what they would do, like these friends of the man who was deaf, in bringing people to Jesus. Church, perhaps most importantly, I believe the very contours of the gospel are on full display in these two stories. From creation that clue that we're given in the text, he has done everything well. Genesis 1.31. He made you, he made me uniquely in his image. The fall we see in the ravaging effects of sin, not only in demon possession, but then in the physical oppression and signaled in Jesus' deep sigh. The anticipation of what he would do to rescue his people is seen in this phrase of the children of Israel, but also the sign of things to come as the prophet declares in Isaiah 35, verses five and six, about opening eyes and opening ears. And yes, the cross itself. For church, Jesus became a dog so that we could come to the table. Jesus was silenced so that our tongues could be loosened. And what he did in the cross was actually break down, not just challenge these divisions, but he dismantles these divisions. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Then in the early church, we see this happen as ears are opened, as tongues are loosened, as the gospel goes forward. Acts 1.8 reminds us from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Paul writes in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And yes, we are given a foretaste of the restoration to come, the arrival of God's kingdom in full when Isaiah 35 will be fully realized. We will take our place at the banquet that is prepared for us 
when we will see the healing of the nations that stream to Zion. And as Isaiah 35.10 says, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Amen, church. Let's give a heartier amen. Amen, church. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we admit we long for that day when sorrow and sighing will flee. And yet it seems so elusive. It seems so far. Even in the devastation in Texas and other situations that we find ourselves being overcome by, Lord, we cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? And yet we thank you that you have, in your mercy, seen fit to entrust your gospels to your people. One new people that you have reconciled through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, open our ears Loosen our tongues and give us the strength and the grace needed to carry your gospel, to tell of all that you have done across the street and around the world. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EVF, subscribe to our podcast, and to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.